Coming to you from the front lines of America's fight for freedom, it's Matt and Brett Goster with America in View. What this world needs is to keep on raising. So people ain't afraid to take a stand. What this world needs is a little more respect for the Lord and the law and the working man. We could use a little peace and satisfaction. Some good people up front to take the lead. A little less talk and a little more action. And a few more rednecks is what we need. Hey, it's Brett and Matt. We're back in the studio today where we are trying to continue our efforts to bring about a third great awakening in America with truth, the Constitution. And a little redneck common sense. And speaking of common sense, Matt, we just witnessed another meeting of the World Economic Forum in this past uh, 10 days or so, where we're once again been told by the world's intellectual elite that everything we understand, all, everything that common folks and working families understand about basic human economics uh, is wrong. We observe the disastrous economic policies of the Biden administration and how it continues to hurt working families across the country and plunge us into some of the worst uh, economic uh, times uh, in the modern era. And so we are blessed this morning to have with us Stephen Moore, who is a economist who I think has been on the front lines of freedom and has been a, a true hero in the effort to bring common sense of freedom back to economic policy in America and thus the rest of the world. Stephen, how you doing? Thanks for joining us this morning. Well, well thank you so much for the kind introduction and a pleasure to be with you. I'm a big fan of what's going on in Florida, uh, maybe not so much what's going on around the country. So you're, you guys are blessed with the great governor. And, uh, you know, I, I think that he could be, uh, he's not going to be president in 2025, but he could easily run again in 2028. And so anyway, good to be with you. Well, it's great to have you. Uh, one of the reasons why I reached out to you and thank you again so much for taking time to be with us is you wrote what I believe is a phenomenal op-ed the other day. It was actually in December. You titled it The Tyranny of the Phillips Curve. And the reason why I appreciated that so much is because there's so much what I would call double speak and double talk in the world of economics and what we're hearing from the Federal Reserve about inflation and taxes and spending. And you kind of broke it down for us in a very simple way. Can you just talk to our audience a little bit about what the Phillips curve is and why these guys are so wrong to be embracing it? Well, let me let me back up for a minute and start by saying that when Joe Biden came into office, um, he waged a $6 trillion spending spree, spending and borrowing spree, which probably makes him the most financially responsible president in American history. And we've never seen anything like that, and especially given the fact that when Biden came into office, COVID was over. Remember, mm-hmm. you know, Trump had the economy growing again. And, uh, you know, so we should have been paying off some of the debt, not <laughs> racking up $6 trillion in new debt. And I want to make sure that your listeners understand that there was, it was Biden's policies that led to this massive increase in inflation. And so under Trump, you know, we averaged less than 2% inflation, and Biden came in, and in 18 months, he had the inflation rate up to 9.1%. Uh, now, it's come down, but there's still everything you buy today is almost 20% more expensive than when Trump left office. And when you talk about things you have to buy, like food prices are up 25%, gas prices are up, depending on your, where you live, 30 35%, mortgage payments up 50%. So people are feeling incredibly financially strained right now. 
And I want to make sure everyone, everyone understands that this didn't happen by accident. It's not like Biden inherited a terrible economy. The economy was in recovery when Biden came into office. And so we have this idea of the Phillips curve over at the Federal Reserve Board, which says that the way to bring inflation down is to increase you know, unemployment. And we don't want to do that. You know, we want to put more people to work. We want to have a vibrant economy. And so uh, that whole Phillips curve idea, which goes back to the 1960s, has been so discredited. I mean, when Ronald Reagan came into office, and I was privileged to work at the end of the Reagan administration for President Reagan, you know, when he came into office, we had very high inflation and very high unemployment. When he left office, we had very low inflation and very low unemployment. So if you get the policies right, and that's why they call it supply-side economics, because we want to increase the production of goods and services, and that puts more people to work, and it brings prices down. Stephen, excellent stuff. And do you have, kind of want to speculate about the psychology of some of these leftists, which who unfortunately have an outsized control over our economy, the supply stuff, the, the supply side concepts you were just talking about, I thought uh, in the presidential debates, actually, Ramaswamy did a pretty good job of articulating yeah, yeah. that a few times yeah. when he's talked about, hey, we got to get workers working, we've got to be producing things. That's the key for wealth creation and and for, you know, getting the inflation under control. What What's going on in the heads of people like Jerome Powell and Christopher Waller, who you quote, who they just always seem to rely on some sort of, you know, manipulation of the economy, playing around yeah. with, with uh, you know, interest rates and all these sorts of things. Well, they remind me of the, uh, you know, the Wizard and the Wizard of Oz, you know, don't pull back that curtain because mm. they feel like they can just, you know, move this lever or this knob and it's going to, you know, affect the economy. Now they can, they can affect the economy by pumping money in and pumping out of the economy. But uh, I'm a big believer that we should have a very rules-based um, monetary policy uh, I, I'm tired of these guys making it up as they go along and everybody trying to speculate what the Fed is going to do. Uh, infl- we have, in my opinion, we have not uh, won the war against inflation. Uh, in fact, the prices are ticking up again. Uh, you know, I don't think we're headed back to 9% on inflation, but I think we might be headed back to 4 to 5% inflation. And that's painful. I mean, my God, I just went with my wife to the grocery store this weekend and it was like $9 for a box of Cocoa Krispies. I just couldn't <laughs> believe what things were costing. And, you know, you remember the old Happy Meals, you, know, you used to get a Happy Meal at McDonald's for your kids for $3. Now they're like $8. So uh, prices are up. And, and middle, here's the thing. You know, Joe Biden ran saying, oh, I'm going to um, help the middle class. No, he hasn't. The middle class, so the, the wealthy are doing pretty well today in America. Middle class is getting hammered. Stephen, so let's talk about that for a minute, because we've on this show have been talking about the impact of inflation as being what I would call a super tax on people's yeah, wealth. It it's not really a tax, but it's a it's a it wealth a destroyer. No, no, right? no. You're right. Stick with that first thought. Inflation is a tax on the money that you've earned because now you have to pay more. It's almost like a sales tax. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. you're paying you know, 18% more every time you go to the grocery store, that, that is like a tax. All right. So I want to follow up on that. You've, <laughs> you've been a proponent of the fair tax, which we're big yeah. fans of the fair tax, right? You, uh, I thought Herman Cain did a pretty good job of maybe trying yeah. to get to a middle ground. I know you helped him with his plan. 999. It, absolutely. Do you see a future where we ever are able to do what you would call um, some sort of you know fee-based or, or retail-based tax that will then limit what government can spend, conversely? Well, look, you're in Florida, right? And you don't have an income tax, do you? That's right. Right. And you're doing just fine. You're one of the fastest-growing economies. Do you think that's by accident? Now, you look, you've got a lot of great 
people and you've got a lot of great weather in Florida and I'm here in rainy Maryland right now and I wish I were in Florida. <laughs> but uh, the fact is that, you know, you've got you in Texas and Tennessee and a few other states that operate with no income tax. Do you think it's just a coincidence that you're booming and a lot of the other states are, are not? It's because income taxes suck the oxygen out of the economy. You ta- you're taxing people on their businesses. You're taxing people on their saving, their investment, their work. You know, when you we should get rid of the income tax at the federal level and just tax people when they go to the cash register. Now, people say, well, that's going to make things more expensive. But no, but remember, the income tax is embedded into the cost of everything that you buy. Um, and so uh, it's just such a simpler system. Wouldn't it be amazing if we didn't have to have a, you know, 75,000 IRS agents, you know, snooping around your financial records all the time. Wouldn't it be amazing if we didn't have to worry about April 15th and we could fill out all these ridiculous tax forms that are incomprehensible? Uh, So, yeah, I'm a big proponent of the fair tax. Get rid of the income tax. Let's have an an 18% uh, national sales tax, and then you're done with it. And everybody would have to pay their fair share if you know, Bill Gates goes out and buys a Maserati, he's going to have to pay an 18% sales tax on that. Uh, it's a good way to make everybody pay their fair share. It's a good way to, by the way, then when you bring stuff into the United States from China or from Japan or Mexico, guess what? There's an 18% tax on that. And so it helped with our balance of trade. It would just be so obvious, so logical, that Washington will probably never do it. Yeah, we love it. Just the simplicity and the predictability of it would be would just oh, yeah. be reassuring to the economy in general. Um, oh my God! I mean, if we did this, it it would be like rocket fuel for the economy. Yeah. I mean, our can you imagine any country competing with the United States if we didn't impose an income tax? <laughs> yeah, it would it would be a game changer. Um, Stephen, we got to ask you do that because they want to soak the rich, tax the rich, tax the people who are successful. Well, you know that that's a good way to you know we know that people are moving from high tax states to low tax states like Florida, and you're, you know, you're becoming the millionaire and billionaire capital of the world. Uh, why don't we make the whole country like Florida? You know, that's what I'm saying. Stephen, we got to ask you, you were on Fox business a few days ago talking about, I think what you called the grand Canyon chasm between uh, the top 1% cultural elites, kind of what their perspective on the current state of affairs is. Can you share with our listeners a couple of those things, just showing how different they think about the world and Joe Biden, et cetera? Yeah, it's a big deal. So we we polled uh, people who went to Ivy League schools and people who have graduate degrees and people who live in urban areas like New York and Silicon Valley and Washington, D.C., which are like bubbles. And then we asked them, and, you know, and people who make over $250,000. So people in that elite class, but more more cultural than economic class, and what we found is, I mean, you're not going to believe this, half of these culturally, by the you know, vast majority of these people are Biden voters, half of them say there's too much freedom in the United States. Can you believe that? <laughs> <laughs> too much freedom? And then, let's see, uh, 60% of them want to get rid of uh, air conditioners because, you know, that causes climate change. Uh, 64% of them want to get rid of um, uh, discretionary air travel. So, you know, if somebody in Nebraska wants to go to Disney World, they they'd have to get in the car. They couldn't fly there. Uh, they, uh, you know, they, they're much more likely to trust government to do the right thing. They don't want parents to have control of the schools. They want the teachers unions to, they, uh, most of them feel like their finances are better off, but for most Americans, you know, they're saying that they're worse off in the last few years. So they have attitudes. It's almost like they, they live in a different country and they have contempt, these elites, 
for working class, blue collar Americans who, you know, work 40, 50 hours a week and do the, do the tough jobs in this country uh, while they stay cocooned in their universities or their ivory towers. So it's an amazing um, example of how divided our country is. And by the way, th- these are not Trump voters. The Trump voters are the middle class, working class folks. So speaking of the working class, Steve, we have time. I, I want to be very respectful of your time today. We probably have time for one more question here. So let me just yeah. ask you this. Yeah. Uh, you know, I I was a big supporter of yours uh, when you were named by Trump uh, to serve on the reserve. Um, mm-hmm. I have become personally uh, – yeah, I understand why they started the Federal Reserve. I understand they were some tumultuous times, but it has grown. Their power has grown out of control. And when I saw the reaction toward you – by yeah. this intellectual elite yeah. that you just just, uh, just yeah. described, yeah. my question is this: Are we too far gone? Is there any hope? Is there any chance that people like you can actually get control of this beast and bring some sanity and freedom back to the economy? Yeah, there is, there is, and you know what? That's going to take. It's going to take uh, uh, Donald J. Trump to get back in the White House. I guarantee you, if uh, he's back in, we are going to at least have transparency and sunshine and spot a spotlight on what's going on in the Fed. I mean, there are 350 PhD economists over there. It's like a temple. Nobody knows what goes on. It's completely secretive. Did uh, no, but None of us elected Jerome Powell, right? Did you vote for him? I didn't vote for him. <laughs> you know, I, I, th- these are powers that we've given to these unelected officials. I think it's dangerous to our, to our system of government. And uh, so let's, yeah, let's open it up. And my gr- good friend, Rand Paul, you know, Rand Paul, the senator from oh, yeah. um, He's one of my favorites. He has a bill that says, "Less, we're going to open up the doors. We're going to see what they're doing, and uh, let, we're going to have a rule about how they operate, so they don't make it up as they go along." But th- th- you know, there's only one man in America who's got the guts to do that, and that's Donald J. Trump. Mm-hmm. Stephen, well said. Stephen, I, I can't thank you enough for your time. I think it was well, real additive. Sometime soon, appreciate it, and. Uh, you know, this is going to be Florida's going to be a critical state, you know, in 2024. So uh, uh, we've got to make sure that we've got a highly educated uh, electorate that gets out there and does the work so we can get bring real change to this country. You're the man. Thank you so much, Stephen. Have a great okay. day. Have a great day. All right. That was Stephen Moore, noted economist uh, with the Heritage Foundation. He was actually appointed to the Federal Reserve Board of Governors by uh, President Trump in his first term. And of course, Unfortunately, Stephen Moore had to withdraw his nomination because he was resisted by rhino Republicans and the liberal elite Democrats. Stick with us as we keep talking about inflation and the economy and what a President Trump means for us, the working man, the working families, and their economic freedom. Don't go anywhere. America in View will be right back. Making common sense cool again. It's Matt and Brett Doster with America in View. And speaking of common sense, what a great interview in the first segment with Stephen Moore, who is a distinguished economist. He is uh, currently working with the Heritage Foundation and continues to provide economic advice to presidential candidates uh, and campaigns and their staff and to governors all across the country. Uh, Matt, if, if we, I think the country would have been much better off if Stephen Moore had been confirmed as one of the members of the Board of Governors for the Federal Reserve, I think people are just so frustrated with what they perceive as being um, the the strong control that the Federal Reserve and the policymakers in D.C. have over 
our basic economics and everybody's suffering well, right now. People don't understand it. I mean, I don't understand it. I think you, you can study it all your, your whole life. And, you know, there's these basic theories about loosening up the money supply or, or tightening it up. And, you know, they, they have all these spreadsheets and analysts and economists and all this strange alchemy that goes on. And then they come out and they're like, oh, we're going to raise the rate a quarter of a point or half a point or whatever. And I mean, it's monkeying around with everything that we talked about during that interview, which is the real value that's been stored in in people's money, which is constantly being tinkered with in the name of some sort of um, either equity across the economy or soft landings or, you know, all the other things that go into it. So, mm-hmm. you know, somebody like Stephen Moore, it's, he's, it's just pure common sense. And, and the elitists, they don't like that. You know, it's not, not sophisticated enough for their taste. I think it comes back to the, to the age-old debate over what is the highest value that you place on one of two things. Do you either value freedom or do you value security? And uh, I think a lot of liberals and liberal elites think, hey, we know better. We need to take care of these people, these poor rubes out there who don't know, um, you know, basic economic facts. And we need to help them understand that us being in charge and telling them uh, what they can do to become more prosperous is uh, better for them. And then there are those of us who trust in freedom who would say, look, I don't care if I go bankrupt 10 times. I would rather the free market, the the invisible hand of the free market, be the one who makes that decision, not some elite liberal bureaucrat in D.C. who's making that decision for me. Exactly right. And don't for a second think that the the elitists that are bought into the system aren't benefiting from it. I mean, these are their buddies, right? They have they have circles of influence, Wall Street, um, you know, um, venture capital the big banks, they all run in the same circles, they have the same interests, and they all they all profit from each other adopting this similar kind of framework that you're talking about. Well, I think they get into the psychology. So let me give you a for instance, going back to the uh, meltdown of the economy at the end of George W. Bush's uh, administration. I think that uh, when, you, when you talk about mortgage-backed securities, that there were people uh, in New York who maybe justified really, really poor economic practices and using the government to guarantee really shabby loans that were likely never to be repaid by saying, look, we're doing a good thing here by putting these things together, by plumping up the stock market and giving people access to these instruments guaranteed by the government. Uh, we're actually enriching people. And then when the, uh, when the dominoes began to topple and the world's economy was at risk, these same people went squealing to the federal government to beg for a bailout saying, look, you need to guarantee all this and make sure we survive because otherwise it's going to bring the entire economy down. And what that essentially does when the government engages and does these kinds of bailouts is it treats big boys different from small boys. And uh, what the big boys need to, to understand uh, under Donald Trump or someone else is that there's no such thing as too big to fail. And right, and the source of, of uh, everything that was going on in the late 2000s, um, as you're saying, at the tail end of George W. Bush and the beginning of Obama, it's easy money. It was easy money in the real estate market. And it just fundamentally defies common sense that it's a good idea for the government with the backing of the taxpayer to take on risks that the private market's unwilling to take on. Right. It makes no sense. 
the easy money, in my opinion, the easy money culprit right now is higher education, which has been for longer than longer than a decade. It's been growing, but there's just all this easy money in an industry that really doesn't produce anything. Um, I mean, education is worthwhile, and it certainly is working for a for a fraction of the um, college graduates out there. Mm-hmm. But it's basically an exercise in nonsense for so many of these. Um, new majors, new areas of study that that dominate the liberal arts side of things. And it's just all this easy money, all this government loans, and now the government loans are being forgiven and nobody's having to pay them. And it's just, it's another form of inflation pumping pumping fake money into an industry that's not uh, valuable. Yeah, that's exactly right. And again, just going back to it, uh, what we just said is that easy money sounds really nice uh, until you realize that it's devaluing itself or is being devalued in the process of giving that easy money. And I go back to the whole Federal Reserve. Arbitrarily, you have one board of eggheads, many of them lib- liberal elites, who are making arbitrary decisions about what the value of money is. And that's insanity, particularly with someone uh, handing the keys over to the kingdom, so to speak, to someone who does not believe in free market principles or economics. I was intrigued about um, Stephen Moore's rules-based monetary policy that he talked about. I like that a lot. I think anything that gives some predictability is good. Uh, it'd be great to talk to him or, or someone else in the future about some of the other ideas that are out there just to, to bring a little bit more rigor and uh, stability to these decision-making. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to the next two segments, Matt. We're going to be talking about attitudes that people have toward money supply, toward the economy, I think we'll pick up in that some attitudes toward Trump and Biden that we can flesh out for our audience. Stick with us for the next two segments where we are talking about inflation and the impact of liberal policies on your pocketbook. Bringing you right to the front line of liberal insanity. Watch out for that first step. It's a doozy. (laughs) And back again. America in View will be right back. Where we still don't understand the insanity of the woke. It's Matt and Brent Doster with America in View. All right, we're back talking about economic issues today and prevailing voter attitudes across the country. We had a great interview, Matt, with Stephen Moore of the Heritage Foundation in the first segment. But there's an old saying in politics, uh, despite the fact that Stephen offered us a lot of facts and a lot of information about inflation in the economy. But there's an old saying that facts don't matter, but voter perspectives and attitudes do matter. And so in that vein, we have another great guest here for this segment. Darren Shaw is a nationally recognized author and pollster. He's based out in Austin, Texas. He's polled mayoral, congressional, gubernatorial, and presidential elections and has uh, even done a lot of work for our beloved Fox News, where most of America gets their uh, information today in the world of politics. Darren, thanks for being with us on the program today. My pleasure. Good morning to you guys. So, Darren, I'm going to ask you the burning question that you have probably been asked at every cafe and every family gathering and every friends gathering since uh, Tuesday night. Any surprises that you saw out of New Hampshire, or was it played out exactly as you expected it? Well, I guess I'm surprised that New Hampshire didn't offer any surprise. Um, you know, they've got a the Granite State has a reputation for uh, being kind of iconoclastic and doing things their own way, but. Um, Honestly, uh, Haley and Trump performed almost exactly what we were expecting given pre-election polling. Mm-hmm. The uh, erstwhile Biden write-in campaign landed him about where everybody expected. Um, turned out maybe a little higher than, than I had thought, 
uh, on both sides. But other than that, you know, it's kind of uh, everybody uh, everybody got what they expected going in. Darren, do you think that uh, Governor DeSantis's exit of the race Sunday changed anything by, you know, even a few points? Or, or do you think that was a uh, insignificant to sort of the final result? Um, it was insignificant towards the uh, direction of the result. That is, Trump was going to win anyway. But it, it added a few points. We were uh, we had DeSantis kind of tracking it around between, you know, four and seven points, depending upon what day mm. you know, you're talking about. So he drops. His support, we thought, was going to go two to one to Trump over Haley, right? So, it's, you know, just say he had six points, four went to, you know, Trump, two went to Haley. That's plus two on the net. That's not that much. Um, I will say, though, DeSantis keeping Haley out of second place in Iowa and then leaving, essentially bequeathing most of his voters to Trump after Iowa meant that uh, whatever potential she had to, ride, to grab some momentum ride it into New Hampshire, which was a pretty good state for her. Santos basically did his best to torpedo that. Yeah, that's going to be interesting to see if she, if she hangs in there through South Carolina. I know she's saying she is right now. Any, any sense on early numbers coming out of South Carolina as to whether she has a shot to do anything there, or do you think it's going to pretty much be a Trump romp? You know, I, I think probably the latter. Uh, New Hampshire, the I- irony is, is that South Carolina is not a very good state for Haley, just given uh, you know, given the, the, the water that uh, her ship has taken on a little bit over the course of the primaries where she's become, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know what you guys think. I don't think she's a particularly rhino type candidate, mm-hmm. but she's been, but she's been kind of tagged as a rhino. Um, and you know, that's a, that's a tag that in some of the new England States, maybe on the Pacific coast, um, doesn't necessarily hurt you even in a primary. Uh, but, but boy, you start moving into States like South Carolina and it's essentially a race to see who's the most conservative. Um, I actually think it'd be, who knows what, you know, her thinking is, what her financial situation, what her family situation is, all those things do play into it. But I think one thing I'd advise you guys to keep your eyes on is that the uh, a lot of the Super Tuesday states, which are only, you know, a few days after South Carolina, they have enormous early voting. Mm. Um, I'm thinking here California and Texas. So I don't know, if I were advising Nikki Haley and she wanted to press forward, she wanted to be kind of the alternative to Trump if something happens um i strongly consider going to places like texas california you don't have the money to advertise there but you do a tour through those places and try to bank 30 percent of the early vote they award their delegates through cds so why not go to those places where there's you know some moderate to liberal republicans see if you can uh, pick off some delegates there and you know, maybe head into, you know, the post-Super Tuesday setting with 25, 30% of the total delegates. It is interesting, Darren, and you're making a good good um, summary, I think, of her posture and kind of what her opportunity is. It is interesting that she's in a position where she's going after moderate to left-leaning voters, even if that's not maybe historically what how people would describe her profile. Um, but it, it almost paints her into that corner just because of where her constituency is right now. Um, we wanted to ask a little bit about issues and we've seen some polling recently that's showing the border getting more and more important to people even amongst uh independents and and uh, democrats are you seeing the same thing and what would you give us uh, i guess as sort of an assessment of where the voters are on specific issues right now i'm seeing the same thing you guys are immigration is rising um in some of these republican primary polls it's eclipsing the economy and inflation is the number one issue hmm. um it's you know, on the Democratic side, not only are you seeing, it's not like Democrats are 
as fired up as Republicans are, but it's creeping up even amongst Democratic um, survey respondents. And if you you know if you think the DAR polls or the the stuff you're looking at is idiosyncratic, just take a look at what people like Tester, um, you know, in Montana, and other people are doing on the border. Um, you know, the Democrats I think realize they need to get out in front of this. They need to try to neutralize this because they've already got a pretty challenging issue environment, right? I mean, yeah. what voters are talking about right now is inflation. Republicans are seen as better able to handle it. Border security, Republicans. Crime, Republicans. Mm-hmm. Uh, foreign policy, Republicans. Um, right now, Democrats are winning, you know, essentially abortion and climate change, um, neither of which, you know, rate in the top four issues right now. So, um, you know, they, they need to to at least neutralize some of those issues or raise the salience of those where they have a little bit of a better, you know, better shot. So, Darren, I, I want to go back to the inflation issue for a second. Um, this is so fascinating to me because I, I think that people generally, even even uh, nonpartisan voters, people who aren't really engaged in the process, have a sense that the economy is worse. They have a sense that their pocketbook is worse off in the last couple of years. But when they're responding and saying that inflation is the number one issue, and I'm, you know – you're the pollster. You're the political scientist here. But I'm curious, do you think they really know what that means, uh, inflation, or do you think they're just reacting to, hey, prices are higher, this is bad? Yeah, it's a good question. We we actually, when this first became an issue, which was, I, I guess, you know, late summer of 2021, um, we decided that uh, most of the people that we were talking to in polls um, didn't really know necessarily what inflation was. So we talked about rising prices. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was how we framed it, you know. Um, and we asked about gas prices, health care, groceries. You know, we tried to really do a deep dive in a bunch of the surveys we were doing with Fox and then here at, at UT Austin. Um, and, you know, the interesting thing is, and this is probably something you, your other guests have talked about, um, unemployment, when it's a real problem, affects 10% of the country. Um, most people have no clue what growth rates are. Um, inflation affects everybody. And so... Um, people feel it. Um, I think the White House has a real, the Biden campaign has a real issue right now, which is, um, you know, telling people that inflation is down is, is technically true, but they're talking about the rate. Um, what people are looking at is $9 boxes of Cheerios. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, that's something, uh, you know, I, I think right now what the Democrats are really hoping is that people just get used to that. And that, that, I think, is their, their strategy for dealing with it as an issue. I'm not sure that's a recipe for changing voters' attitudes prior to the election. Darren, are you surprised, going back to immigration, are you surprised that Biden and the White House aren't doing more to, to just change perception on their performance on that issue? Do you think it's a situation where they're just committed to their own policies and don't want to show weakness or something like that? Yeah, I think there's a – and this isn't – you know, I don't mean this is a – partisan shot um both sides are so close to winning you know in the house and the senate and the white house that they can taste it and they're not willing to admit even obvious failures mm. and this is something you see with republicans and democrats right so so there's there's no willingness on the part of the white house to say hey you know maybe pumping four trillion dollars into the economy during covid you know maybe that had maybe that was good in some ways but maybe it contributed to inflation you know there's no sense that Hey, we we might have overdone this. We've learned. Here's what we're doing now, and I think that's a fundamental problem, right? If you don't admit any mistakes, it's impossible to 
to build the argument that you know, we've learned and adjusted. Um, and I think, to, you know, to me, they did try to rebrand their, their whole economic program with Bidenomics. But, but that was an odd, you know, an odd initiative. It was essentially trying to basically make the claim that y'all are too stupid to understand how great the economy is. I'm, I'm not sure that's a winning message. <laughs> All right, so we got about a minute left here, Darren. So tell us this: just uh, use your crystal ball for a second. Knowing that you have two uh, essentially eighty-year-old guys in the process who probably don't like to admit they're wrong about anything, uh, where do you see this thing going down? The narrowest of victories on either side, or do you see either either one ending up with a blowout in November? Gosh, you know, I've I've been talking to some people, and here's the weird consensus. See if this makes sense to you. Sense to you guys, that lots of people say one of two scenarios are more are most likely. Uh, a, a very slight Trump win or a fairly sizable Biden win. By sizable, I mean, you know, six, seven points. Um, I think the, the latter scenario depends on, you know, slight improvement in the economy, um, a foreign policy victory somewhere, mm. right? You know, you can't have two conflicts going on and do well. But, uh, you know, maybe a win in Ukraine or in Israel, Hamas, uh, inflation recedes a little bit, and people just can't stand the thought of four more years of Trump, right? Um, if things keep going on the way they are, I think Trump has a natural ceiling at about 47 48%. Um, but if things keep bubbling along the way they are, Biden is not going to catch him. And then, you know, that's the recipe for a very, very, you know, kind of close Trump win. And th- most people think those are the, the likely scenarios. Darren, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for your time. We're going to have you back on because I want you to answer the question about what potential third-party candidates mean for these guys. Darren, it's been a pleasure you having on. Thank you so much for the interview today. My pleasure. Thank you, guys. All right, guys. Stay tuned with us for the last segment. That was Darren Shaw, pollster out of UT, Texas, and frequently does work for Fox News. We'll be back with you in the fourth segment momentarily. On the front lines fighting the insanity of the woke, America in View will be right back. Counseling the walk back to freedom and rational thought. It's Matt and Brett Doster with America in View. All right, here we are for the fourth segment. Matt, we have had two phenomenal interviews on this show today, both with Stephen Moore, the Heritage Foundation, and now Darren Shaw, who's a noted national pollster. He does a lot of work for Fox News and has been taking a look at all of these early presidential preference primary states. Yeah, those are great interviews. I enjoyed them a lot myself. Hope our listeners did too. No doubt. I also want to give a shout out here to our producer, Matt Rogers, who is uh, talented because he can keep you and me on track and both and keep these uh, interviews going at the same time. So Matt, thanks for all your good work. Um, Matt, just talking issues here for a moment. You know, we I, I saw a poll the other day uh, from a legislative district. You may have been referencing that in the interview with Darren Shaw that showed that 60% of voters in a particularly rural legislative district in Texas chose the border crisis as their number one issue. Now, these are Republican issues uh, or Republican voters, but uh, it was interesting to hear Darren say that what he's seeing nationally is that inflation is at the top of the uh, mind whenever people are asked. With him, if inflation and the border crisis both remain as the top two issues in the country, I just don't see how Joe Biden wins. I agree. I was a little bit surprised that Darren um, saw it as, you know, not as maybe problematic for the Biden side of the equation. Uh, but, uh, you know, there's a lot of wisdom there as well and just some knowledge of the electorate where the where the battleground states are and, and so on. The A lot of the polls about direction of the country – 
or job approval of Biden. I mean, the, the direction of the country numbers, it's like two to one, maybe even slightly more than um, two to one that we're mm-hmm. going in the wrong direction, right? And it's yeah. it's just hard to think that when things look that bad that you don't want a change of leadership. Having said that, things can change, right? I mean, we're, we're uh, late January. We've got, what, I guess about 10 months to to election time. So who knows what might change, but man, based on the, just the, the context of what we're looking at right now, I agree with you. The thing that I think is interesting, we talked about taxes a couple of weeks ago with Grover Norquist. Um, I think as this election comes more into view, people are, are kind of at the economic breaking point inside their own households right now. If this conversation does turn to the support, the Trump tax cuts staying in place or Joe Biden, would you allow the Trump tax cuts to expire? I think Biden's going to be tempted to say the tax cuts were bad. We're going to let them expire. If they start running some numbers on what that's going to mean to your average family, I think it's going to be a backbreaker for the Dems. Right. I hope they go in that direction. And it's it's so hard sometimes just to understand the mindsets on either side of the aisle, right? Because, I mean, there there are priorities on the other side, whether it's, you know, student loan forgiveness, um, increasing fuel efficiency standards, you know, getting rid of propane gas stoves, these kinds of things that make no sense to kind of your ordinary average working class Americans. And they actually hurt people. Right. But they make a ton of sense to the ideological left. And there is a, that's a pretty big group, unfortunately, in our country, uh, certainly in urban areas. So, you know, it's just hard to, hard to figure. Uh, I did think it was interesting though, what Darren said about uh, being like, unwilling to admit mistakes. It's like, hey, this is our message. This is our platform. This is what we're running with. We're not going to change. And and on that, I think the immigration issue really may be the one that's the biggest backfire for the left because it's just so obviously bad for our country. And you have so many people, even these blue state governors and mayors, who are just out of answers. They they don't know what to do about it at this point. Ironically, the the thing that is so mind-blowing about this or Democrats strategically, is that this is an issue that is Trump's marquee issue. So you would think, you and I were talking the other day, you, you, you would think, kind of like Obama did with taxes. If, if people can remember or think back to Obama when he ran in 2008 versus John McCain, he came out with a tax cut plan. And believe it or not, Barack Obama came out with a tax cut plan that said, we're going to increase taxes on the top 3%. 97% of the country is going to get a tax cut under my tax plan. He almost sounded like a moderate you know, Republican, uh, he, and Obama's almost a Marxist. To your point, you would think that Biden would roll out the reasonable stop the bleeding yeah. of the border plan. The Scranton plan, yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> right, The, exactly. the Dunder Mifflin plan yes. of uh, working class Americans. Correct. That's right. That's right. Instead, if they keep doing this, I think it just gives rise to Trump being able to go into Michigan, Wisconsin, uh, even New York, and uh, make the pledge that, look, I'm going to stop it. And I think people believe that he's serious about that. That is where the ideological bent is so so prevailing and significant, because if you just don't believe that stuff is right, it's like they can't get there to do something even tactical like what you're describing. Uh, I mean, we've been talking about taxes the last couple of episodes, and uh, I was struck because we talked about all the progress that's been made with uh, the, when Grover Norquist was our guest, talking about the states that have moved away from income taxes at the state level and so on. There are still far-left states, Vermont was one of them, 
where there there's a movement there to introduce basically wealth taxes, even if it's not on your income, to just mm-hmm. tax you on your wealth, similar to the way property taxes are here, you know, in the in the state of Florida, which we had criticized. And it's like, who who are these people that think these are good ideas? Yet they're they are there. They they exist. They are um, strong in their own little world. And so, right, I don't know that that the Biden team could even get to that point where they threw some threw a bone to the uh, middle, so to speak, and said, "Look, we're not losing these Rust Belt states." But it's like they're in, incapacitated to even think that way. Well, ironically, I still kind of give the uh, I still give the Republicans a better opportunity this November because, uh, as we know, on presidential campaigns, so much is out of your control. The economy is so much bigger. The general economy is so much bigger than a presidential campaign. So what the Democrats can hope for, as Darren noted, is that maybe the economy just gets a little bit better on its own. You know, maybe, uh, maybe the stock market has just a whale of a second or third quarter and people's pension plans go up a little bit and people are not feeling quite so bad about the economy. The problem is that for a lot of working class Americans, particularly those who would be impassioned to turn out for a Democrat nominee, they don't have big fat pension plans. And uh, so I just don't see the economy necessarily getting better for them, even if it gets better for everyone else. Right. And there's this whole speculation. Will we hit a recession? Is there going to be a soft landing? Did you know the money policy people get it figured out exactly right? That's an open question. We're not sure what will happen there, and, and we're all going to be watching. The, the one piece of it that I think is worth those of us on the right remembering, just as we, as we consider these, um, these two candidates and the dynamics around them, there is a very palpable, harshly felt hatred for Donald Trump by a large number of Americans. Yeah. Uh, and it's the kind of hatred that will motivate people to go out and vote against a particular person maybe like what we saw against Hillary Clinton where there you know even though the Clintons had this mantle of democratic leadership for a long time she was especially reviled by a certain segment of the United States that can't be underestimated there there's going to be a certain number of people that vote just against Trump and the fact that if you look at the popular uh vote totals that he's gotten in in the two elections he was he was always behind so um yeah, it's, it's an electoral map kind of a thing. So that was one thing that we didn't get to ask Darren. Maybe we can in a few weeks. But that was uh, something I, I noted whenever Trump gave his uh, accept, not acceptance speech, but his victory speech in New Hampshire. All of the subdued generosity that he expressed in Iowa had sort of melted away. He was uh, you know, slamming Nikki Haley for taking a victory lap herself. And then he spent almost his entire speech slamming Nikki Haley. Even Sean Hannity, Hannity at the end of the speech said, well, I wish he had spent more time talking about Joe Biden than Nikki Haley. That kind of antagonism, I think, ultimately can keep creep back up in her. And, and it'll always be there. I mean, that's just part and parcel with his personality and his approach. And you're right. It's like it's it's his strength and his biggest weakness at the same time. Well, he needs to dial it back. As we've said before, regardless of what you feel about these guys, Republicans have to go vote. If we don't vote, we don't win. So make sure that you're getting registered now. Register your family and friends. Prepare and have a plan to go vote in November. Thanks for another great segment of America in View.
Thanks for listening to America in View. For more information, go to AmericaInView.com. Let's go.